Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. The Box of Oddities is now a CastBox original. CastBox is the fastest growing, highest rated podcast app on both iOS and Android, where you can find all your favorite podcasts. You can listen to The Box of Oddities wherever you access your podcasts. But we hope you give CastBox a try. The curator is greatly pleased with CastBox. We think it's the best. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange... The bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Hi. Hi. Hey, we want to thank you for the great response on the bonus episode that we dropped on uh, Saturday, actually Friday night. We're glad you enjoyed it. I know I enjoyed those mutton chops. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. James Taylor, the uh, world's foremost authority on sideshows and freak shows, uh, joined us for uh, an interview, and he has got the most amazing mutton chops ever. Big fan, big fan. I'm working on mine, though. I'm working on it. You do good. (laughs) A couple of episodes ago, I talked about Waverly Hills, uh, the tuberculosis hospital that's allegedly haunted. Now, I had found some EVPs that were recorded there by uh, Priyav, Dr. Regina Wolf, and I had uh, emailed her and asked for permission to use them and hadn't heard back from her until the day after the episode dropped. So <laughs> so I'm going to play a clip of it for you here. Sure. And uh, get your reaction on it. Awesome. Electronic voice phenomenon is what uh, an EVP is for those who are not familiar with the term. Allegedly, what happens is uh, communication with the spirit world is achieved through electronic devices, whether it be uh, old-fashioned tape recorders or digital recorders or film, anything like that. Sure. Now, they were walking through Waverly Hills, and there was a uh, a painting on the wall, graffiti of uh, a skeleton. And she says, look, there's a ghost. And then when they played the tape back, you can hear what sounds like a little girl saying, yes, look at me. Okay, take a listen. All right, but first of all, you've already told us what we should be hearing. So our brains are going to lead us to believe that we've heard that. That's probably kind of defeating the purpose of listening to an EVP in the first place. God, you're such a killjoy. I'm just saying. 
All right, listen. Let's hear it. <clears throat> I have a feeling that you're going to poo-poo this anyway. What? So. No. Okay, I hear what you're saying. What do you think? So obviously not the highest quality recording, but that's what's called a Class A EVP, where you can uh, hear a voice and it's responding to um, a statement or a question. An intelligent EVP is what they call it, Class A. I see. That's... Yeah. Yeah, like when uh, someone will go into the basement and say, you know, hello, is there anybody here with us? Bloop, bloop, bloop. And then, yeah. you know, the, the sound recording has like, yeah, my name's Bob. And, <laughs> I'm uh, dead. I'm... I, was, I was murdered here about, <laughs> uh, oh, I don't know, like uh, 10, 10, 15 years ago, I think. Yeah. And, uh been hanging out here ever since what are you guys up to i'm some those some snazzy sneakers you got there that the trend these days i ain't seen nothing like that in oh oh 10 15 years so bob the ghost is from minnesota oh i don't know i don't know what that or possibly some part of canada (laughs) (laughs) i just think that that would be a lot more convincing to me as instead of like Mm, you could hear like hey uh yeah can someone check on that shed make sure it's still locked i'm worried about the uh the wind blowing it open I'm sure oh, that's there, Bob. He was always worried about that work shed. Yeah. I'm sure there are some shed concerned apparitions <laughs> if we look hard enough for it. <laughs> anyway, there you have it. You be the judge. Um, what do you have for me today? Your turn. Oh, I go first. Okay. All right. Yay. So prepare yourself. This is dark. Okay. Yeah. And I now that I'm saying that out loud, I think I recall the last episode I said, the next one I'll make really light because we got kind of heavy there for a bit. Mm. And I, I forgot about that. That's okay. Yeah, Dark I it is. apologize. Uh, my bad. That was like an EVP. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Just like that. <clears throat> Joseph Maggio was an Italian grocer who was attacked on May 22nd 1918, while sleeping alongside his wife, Catherine, in their home. A man broke into their home, then proceeded to cut the couple's throats with a straight razor. Upon leaving, he bashed their heads in with an axe, presumably to conceal the real cause of death. Joseph survived the attack, but died minutes after being discovered by his brothers, Jake and Andrew Maggio. Catherine died prior to the brothers' arrival, uh, mostly because she had almost been decapitated. These are thought to be the first victims of the Axemen of New Orleans. The Axemen? The Axeman of New Orleans. The Axemen of Narlins. The Axemen of Narland. You sounded Scottish there. Yeah, I'm not going to, I'm going to cut that right out. Um, I guess it's Axeman, but for some reason that makes me think of, um, I'm an Axeman. Yeah, I'm the Axeman. It's too high for me. (laughs) So in the apartment, law enforcement agents found the bloody clothes of the murderer. He had obviously changed into a clean set of clothes before leaving the scene. A complete search was not completed by police until after the bodies were removed, uh, but a bloody razor was found on the lawn of a neighboring property. By the way, uh, most of this information comes from Wikipedia, love you, and an article on prairieghosts.com. Police had ruled out robbery as a motivation for the attacks, as money and valuables 
were left in plain sight and not stolen by the intruder. And the razor used to kill the couple was found to belong to Andrew Maggio, the brother of the deceased, who had a barbershop up the way. Maggio had taken the razor from the shop a couple days prior, uh, explaining that he wanted to have a nick honed from the blade. At first, police thought that the man responsible for the first murder was Andrew Maggio, because it was his it was razor. his razor, sure. Um, and he had been one of the first people to come across the couple. Um, he became the police chief's prime suspect in the crime, yet was released after investigators were unable to break down his statement, as well as uh, his account of an unknown man who was supposedly lurking near the residence prior to the murders. All right. Well, that would be my first assumption. Hey, it's a, it's a member of the family. Often that's the case. Sure. Uh, it's his razor, mm-hmm. and he found him. Right. Yeah. Okay. About a month later, Louis Bessemer and his mistress, Harriet Lowe, were attacked with an axe in the early morning hours of June 27th at the quarters in the back of his grocery. The first man and his lady yeah. that were attacked, right. they owned a grocery store. This man is also Italian and owns a grocery store. Okay, I got you. Uh, The couple were discovered shortly after 7 a.m. on the morning of the attack by a man delivering bread to the store, which I think would be horrible because you're all like, fresh baked goods, fresh baked goods, all murder. (laughs) And that's going to bring things down a notch. It certainly affects one's palate for uh, freshly baked goods. Right. Ruins everything. The axe, which had belonged to Bessemer himself, was found in the bathroom of the apartment. Bessemer later stated to police that he had been sleeping when he was bashed with the axe. Uh, Robbery was said to be the only possible explanation for the attacks, yet no money or valuables were removed from the couple's home. So weird. Almost immediately after this attack, police arrested a potential suspect, Louis Obicon. He was a 41-year-old African-American man who had been employed by Bessemer. No evidence, though, exists which could have proven that man guilty, but police arrested him, stating that he had conflicting accounts of where he was that morning. And he was African-American. Oh, yeah. They were, though, unable to gather enough evidence to hold him. Media then began to turn on Bessemer, the victim himself, as a series of letters in German, Russian, and Yiddish were discovered in his home, and police thought that he was a German spy. Lo, the mistress, became the center of a media circus as she kept making scandalous and often false statements relating to both the attacks and the character of Bessemer. The Times-Picayune sensationalized those statements once Bessemer's wife came back into town. What? And it was discovered that Lowe was the mistress and not the wife. Oh, my God. And um, she's saying all these insanely sensational things. So they were printing the heck out of it. For instance, Lowe did say that uh, to police that she thought Bessemer was, in fact, a German spy, which led to his arrest. Two days later, he was released. The two lead investigators on that case were demoted because of unacceptable police work, because you can't just go, oh, yeah, okay, we'll arrest him then. It's not cool. Those were different times, though. Bessemer was once again arrested in August after Lowe who lay dying after a failed surgery, stated that it was he who had attacked her. He was then charged with murder, served nine months, and then was acquitted. So there was it was a rough situation wow. for Bessemer at this point. Yeah, it's a very, very bad period in one's life. Not long after that, Anna Schneider was attacked in the early evening hours of August 5th. She was eight months pregnant, and she was bashed in the face repeatedly. Her husband discovered her uh, when he came home late from work. Schneider remembered nothing of the attack, gave birth to a healthy baby girl two days after the incident. 
It was discovered not long after, during the investigation, that she had probably been beaten about the face with a lamp that was on a nearby table. So, again, nothing stolen from the home, Mm -hmm. a woman attacked. Um, It was with an item that was found in the location. Right, right. James Gleason, who is an ex-convict in the area, was arrested shortly after that in connection with this incident, but then was released due to a complete lack of evidence. My God. We're seeing a lot of patterns here. So then on August 10th, 1918, Joseph Romano, who is an elderly man living with his two nieces, is attacked. Pauline and Mary, the nieces, come into his room when they hear a commotion. They find their uncle's been attacked and they find an assailant fleeing the scene. They were able to distinguish that he was a dark-skinned, heavy-set man who wore a dark suit and slouched hat. Romano died two days later due to severe head trauma. The home had been ransacked, but no items were stolen. And authorities found a bloody axe in the backyard and discovered that a panel on a back door had been chiseled away. So this murder sent the city into chaos. People began to speculate about motives. Police were being contacted by town folks saying that they're finding axes in their yards. A retired detective is making public statements about this real-life Jekyll and Hyde who's running around with two personalities, and it could be anyone. It could be your neighbor. That just sells newspapers. It doesn't help anyone. It's awful. And nothing happens for seven months. But then, screams were heard coming from the home of Charles Cordomiglia. Grocer, Lorlando Giordano, rushed across the street to investigate, and he came across Charles Cordomiglia and his wife and daughter having all been attacked by an unknown intruder. A panel on the back door had been chiseled away. A bloody axe was found on the back porch of the home. Nothing was stolen from the home. So in this situation, Charles was released from the hospital two days later. Their baby died, and the wife remained in the care of doctors. So again, the pattern repeats. Right. The wife, Rosie, made claims that the man who found them, Lorlando Giordano, and his son were responsible for the attacks. But it just didn't make sense. Lorlando is like 69 years old, and his son, Frank, is like 200 pounds and can't weasel his way in through a panel of a door. (laughs) Charles Cordomiglia vehemently denied his wife's claims. Uh, Police nonetheless arrested the two and charged them with murder. The men were found guilty and sentenced one to hang and one to life in prison. Charles Cordomiglia divorced his wife because you can't trust that woman. And later she said that she had falsely accused the two out of jealousy and spite. And the the two were eventually released from prison. Oh, good. Right. Their sentences were not carried out. So following this murder, New Orleans was again filled with terror. The police stated they believed all of the crimes had been committed by the same man, and in the paper they called him a, quote, bloodthirsty maniac filled with a passion for human slaughter, which I'm sure calmed everyone. (laughs) Say that like in your old-time newsreel voice. (laughs) Well, it would have been 1919, so I don't think that that was really the voice that was popular at the time. But it seems appropriate. Oh, okay. Uh, committed by the same man. A bloodthirsty maniac filled with a passion for human slaughter. I love that. Thanks. And just a few days later, the editor of the New Orleans Times-Picayune newspaper received a letter from a man who claimed to be the Axeman. Really? It was gross. It was just paragraph after paragraph of like, I am the knight. You will never catch me. Don't try to get me because I'll just get angrier and be blah, blah, blah. I 
cannot stand self-promoting criminals. It <laughs> grosses me out. And it's just like, you're not what you think you are. You're sad. And you make me sad in my heart and my spirit. Um, he did state toward the end of the letter, after a lot of puffing of himself, that at 1215 earthly time, he had to say earthly time because uh, he's of hell, you know, and right. blah, blah, blah. anyway, <laughs> um, on that next Tuesday, he was going to pass over New Orleans and that he would be killing someone, but not if they were playing jazz music. Oh, okay. If everyone, he wrote, has a jazz band going, well, then it's so much better for you people. Ew, ew, ew. Anyway, so it, there was a lot of other stuff about how he was great and stuff, and it was just just gross. So that Tuesday comes about, and the dance halls are filled to capacity. Amateur bands, no matter how bad they are, are playing jazz music. The city is filled with jazz, and no one is murdered. And no one was murdered the next Tuesday or the next. So they were they were doing it every Tuesday, like hundreds of jazz bands all playing at the same time. That must have been quite a caterwaul. No, I think it was just the one Tuesday. Oh, okay. But uh, several weeks later, on August 10th, 1919, Steve Boca, a grocer, awoke during the night to find a dark figure looming over his bed and he was attacked with an axe. He lost consciousness but survived Nothing had been taken from his home. Why is this person so angry at grocery store owners? I don't know. But there are... No, we'll get into that. Okay. Sarah Lothman was attacked on the night of September 3rd, 1919. Neighbors discovered her lying unconscious in her bed, suffering a severe head injury, missing several teeth. The intruder had entered the apartment through an open window this time, but a bloody axe was found on the front lawn of the building. Mike Pepitone was attacked the night of October 27th, 1919. His wife was awakened by a noise and arrived to the door of his bedroom just as a large, axe-wielding man was fleeing the scene. Her husband had been murdered. So there were some theories that Axeman was just looking for women to murder, that he was somehow, you know, getting off on this. Right. There were theories that Axeman was a racist and hated Italians. Mm -hmm. There were theories that he really had no preference. He just wanted to murder people. Or he was just really really angry at neighborhood grocers. I mean, maybe he was a grocer. Maybe he was trying to, like, uh -huh. beat down the competition. I don't know. Crime writer Colin Wilson speculated that the Axeman could have been Joseph Momfrey, who was a man shot to death in Los Angeles in December 1920 by the widow of Mike Pepitone, who's the one we just talked about. Right. Wilson's theory has been widely reported in true crime books and websites. However, true crime writer Michael Newton searched New Orleans and Los Angeles public police and court records, as well as newspaper archives, and failed to find any evidence that a man named Monfrey was attacked or murdered there, or that Mrs. Pepitone had any criminal history. So Wilson's explanation seems to be urban legend. There is now seems to be no more evidence on the identity of the killer than there was at that time. So they've never caught this guy. They've never caught the guy. There are two alleged early victims of the Axeman, which were an Italian couple named Chambra, who were shot by an intruder in their lower Ninth Ward home in the early hours of May 16, 1912. Mr. Chambra survived, his wife died, and in newspaper accounts, the prime suspect is referred to by the name of Momfrey, while 
of course, the MO is dramatically different. If Momfrey was the axe man, the Chambres may have been the early victims of that future serial killer. According to scholar Richard Warner, the chief suspect in the crimes was Frank Doc Momfrey, who used the alias Leon Joseph Momfrey. But these are all just theories. I still think that he was a competitive grocer. <laughs> this story is somewhat portrayed in a season of American Horror Story. And we watched some of that. And I had no idea that it was based on a true story. Oh, so was when that I... the witch coven one that took place in, uh, in New Orleans? Correct. Ah, yes. Yeah. And uh, Jessica Lange was dating the Axeman. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember that. And uh, I think that's right around the time that we stopped watching it. For no particular reason. For no particular reason. I had no idea that this was based on a true thing. That's and so when I found this story and I'm reading it, I'm like, gosh, this feels familiar. And then I, it dawned on me, oh my gosh. And then I realized, holy crap, it's fascinating. And because we don't know a motive and because we do have that weird, gross letter, um, did he refer to himself as anything in that letter? like The Axeman. Yeah, that's far more dramatic than the grocery store guy killer. Right. Now, as as I mentioned, there were many theories. Um, the, the idea that he was doing all this to promote jazz music is also a theory. What? But I can't get on board that train because there are a lot of things that I love and support, but probably wouldn't like nearly decapitate people about. Like, I love hummus, right? but I'm right. not going to be like murdering people to promote hummus, even though but, I really love hummus. Well, the, the guy was a patron of the arts. He just really, really loved Dixieland. It's bizarre, and I think if it were just a serial killer and he were just gross and doing these things, it wouldn't have fascinated me as much as this weird jazz connection mm. and all the patterns that don't seem to lead to any sort of resolution. I hate an unsolved crime. I know you do. I know it's starting to bother me immensely that there are so many repeating patterns here, and yet we have no idea what it was about, right. who committed it, or why. But the one of the, the many patterns being repeated is that police are desperately trying to arrest anyone. Yeah. And that, I think, is really where the downfall in this investigation was. They were more focused on just getting someone in jail rather than trying to find the actual person who had been committing these crimes. Amazing. And that's it. That's the story of the Axeman of Nor or the Axeman of New Orleans. AKA the grocery store guy killer. Yeah. And now, that thing in the middle. That thing in the middle this time, bizarre historical pregnancy tests. I'm not gonna like this. Probably you won't either. Number five, it was a 15th century medieval belief that you could predict pregnancy by having the woman pee on a door latch. What would tell you, how would you, what would be the... Okay, uh, if the key or the latch's outline was damaged by the woman's urine, she was considered not pregnant. Now, my question is, how difficult was it to pee on a door latch? I mean, if you're a guy, relatively easy. But you're a woman, could you pee on a door latch? I could pee on any door latch. Have you peed on door latches? I've peed on many things. Number four. Sometimes doctors would analyze by way of taste. 
a woman's urine to see if they were or were not pregnant. My God, what a terrible part of being a doctor that must be. Yes, back in the Middle Ages, things were very different, and sometimes it led to people drinking pee. Number three, ancient Greeks and Egyptians believed that you could predict pregnancy by putting an onion on your vagina. Um, I, I can see how that would keep one from getting pregnant. I was just going to say the exact same thing. <laughs> 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 this bitch weird. <laughs> As far as ridiculous pregnancy tests go, this one is at least pretty harmless. Number two, pee on a cup full of sugar. Yeah, there, it seems to be, they were on the right track with the urine thing. Sure, But they were yeah. just doing the wrong things with it. Apparently, a pregnant woman's pee would make the sugar clump up instead of properly dissolving. And number one, one early scientist believed you could tell a woman was pregnant just by looking in her eyes. In the 16th century, a doctor named Jacques Guillemou thought that urine analysis was just totally crazy and unnecessary, especially, you know, if you have to drink it. Um, in his eyes, he had the best method of divining pregnancy. He would just stare into their eyes. He claimed that in the second month of pregnancy, a woman's eyes would change noticeably enough for an astute doctor to be able to observe. All right, but probably he was the only one that could do it. Yeah. Probably you had to give him a lot of money. Right. Probably he was very special and gross. And probably he uh, just didn't want to drink the urine. Slacker. This is the Box of Oddities. I said box. Ew, enough of pee talk. Story time. All right, I'm going to talk about a movie called Return to Babylon. Okay. This movie has quite a history surrounding it, and one that involves strange and paranormal activities. Could it be? Could it be? It was originally filmed in the early 2000s. It was a short that was expanded into a full-length feature. Okay. It's about 1920s Hollywood and scandals there, like uh, the William Desmond Taylor murder, or the fart up. <laughs> Fatty Arbuckle, not Farty Adbuckle. Fatty Arbuckle. Uh, he seems like someone who would have farted a lot. Yeah, you could have called him Farty. Yeah. He was accused of raping a young starlet, and it was a big scandal, and ultimately he was acquitted, but his career was destroyed. And then stories and and tragedy and and controversy surrounding Rudy Valentino, Rudolph Valentino, Gloria Swanson, Clara Bow. And what they did was they recreated these tragedies as a silent film in the exact locations where these things happened. Ew, Why? To give it a sense of authenticity. And they used the original type of 16 millimeter black and white film that they shot movies on back in those days. Okay. Alex Kanawati, who is the uh, film's director, said the inspiration for the film was initially was that he and his, uh, what would end up being his producer, were walking down Hollywood Boulevard and found a bag sitting next to a parking meter and they opened it up and it was it there was like 19 reels of 16 millimeter black and white film yeah that I, was that was factory sealed from the 20s i remember hearing about this like it kind of just showed up out of yeah. nowhere and it's totally weird and they thought hey we should make a, a black and white movie so they used this film to make this motion picture mm-hmm. And they cast people like Jennifer Tilly as uh, Clara Bow. Uh, great casting job there, by the way. I love Jennifer Tilly. Seven. 
And they hired a, a great cast and they recreated the murders and the controversial um, activities that people were involved in back in the 20s because there was a lot of scandal. Sure. In Tinseltown in the 20s. Murder, rape, fraud, extortion. And mm. it was just, it was the Wild West. So in the process of filming all of this stuff at the actual locations, using actors and actresses that look a lot like the original people involved, when when viewing the film, all of a sudden weird things started showing up on the negatives. What kind of weird things? Here's an excerpt of an interview with uh, Alex Monte Kanawati. This was uh, done by a guy named Jonathan Douglas Duran. Alex was asked about uh, what happened on the set, and he said, Jennifer Tilly was quite vocal on the set that there was the presence of ghosts, and she kept reiterating that they were touching her and such. The still photographer would also capture strange images on the stills. In looking at the negatives of the film, actors' faces seemed to morph into gross demonic shapes. Things that were not there when they were filming showed up in the background Uh, When the film was looked at, the actors just uh, would, if you go frame by frame, they morph into these grotesque looking demonic creatures. It's so creepy. It doesn't make any sense. Just to reiterate, though, they are using old film. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there is a possibility that old film does weird things. Absolutely. But they took the negatives to the Brooks Institute of Photography. And these people were very intrigued about the claims, and they wanted to investigate the film. They could not come up with a conclusive answer on uh, what produced this bizarre effect, these bizarre images on the film's negatives. Theories, of course, is that, you know, they were, it was older film, Mm -hmm. and that it was shot at 16 frames per second, and then when it was played back at 24 frames per second, it may have caused what appeared to be this paranormal activity. But the Brooks Institute of Photography doesn't see that as a realistic possibility. The other explanation is that this is all just a viral marketing publicity thing. Mm -hmm. But if you think about it, when when they started making this, it was 2001. Still pretty early in the internet. It's not like that was something that would have been first and foremost in the marketing strategy. Well, people have always been trying to get things marketed virally. It just wasn't called that. But if he was trying to create a buzz about the film to create some, generate some some interest, it hasn't worked. He was unable to find a distributor for the film. Good luck even trying to find a copy of it online anywhere, except for like the trailer and a couple of clips here and there. Alex says that uh, since he made this film, he has been racked with financial and personal bad luck. And people think he's crazy. His family has, as he said in an interview, persecuted him. Now, he doesn't see it as demonic images alone in the film. He also claims that he sees biblical references and Christ-like figures. And so his family's like, yeah. He's, he's not accomplished what a viral marketing campaign would normally be the goal of accomplishment. It's been quite the opposite sure. of that. He's become, according to interviews that I've read online kind of obsessed with this Mm. he seems like you know based on the video interviews i've seen with him he seems like a very likable uh, intelligent man but he is saying some pretty weird things and you know i'm not going to criticize him for that because i don't really i wasn't there but what i do know is that these pictures 
are freaky as shit. <laughs> You're so cute. In an interview, he was asked, does he think that uh, the film itself is haunted? And he said, uh, you have posed a very interesting question. But I don't think that ghosts and religion cannot be intertwined. After all, he said, many Christians believe in the Holy Ghost, which discusses hev- which is discussed heavily in the New Testament. Uh, after the experiences with this film and what I have seen and continued to see, yes, I most definitely believe in ghosts. I think the other side has many layers and levels to it, something that we uh, are just scratching the surface of. What is the soul? What causes these occurrences on the film? I would tend to lean toward a religious explanation simply because of the numerous Christ-like images that are represented in the film, and that alone is some pretty deep stuff. He thinks that there is an otherworldly force trying to get a message through to us through the use of the old film and the negatives of this movie that he has shot. And that's why it just kind of showed up and why these... Okay. Yeah. So does he have any uh, theories about what that message is? Or is it just... They're trying to get a message through. Yeah, I think he's on a journey of discovery with that. The film, it took years and years and years for the film to actually be released. Uh, It wasn't until August of 2013 that it was released, but they never got a distribution deal, not one that I could find any record of. Mm -hmm. It's not available anywhere. Netflix, it's not available on YouTube, uh, except for, like I said, a couple of clips here and there and the trailer. But... I can't find the full film version anywhere. If anybody knows where it is, I would really like to watch it. It looks pretty interesting. The clips and the images mm. that I have uh, seen online, it's fascinating. I'd like to learn more. We'll put some of those photos up online. You can check them out for yourself. I don't know. I don't know if I'd want to watch that. I don't, I mean, I don't believe any of what you're saying. Um, but at the same time, I understand that I don't understand everything. And Jennifer Tilly is amazing. Mm-hmm. And I do not ever presume that I know more than Jennifer Tilly. No, I, I think anyone would be a fool to. And as we all know, my favorite thing that Jennifer Tilly has ever said that I quote her on frequently is seven. <laughs> and then if you think about the movie The Ring, which is a haunted film, uh, which leads to people dying. Right. And what, it, what is the, the, the thing from The Ring? Seven days. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Oh, so you're putting this all together. I am. So you think it's a bunch of BS, yeah. but you're still determined not to watch it. No. No. Okay. I heart Jennifer Tilly. But you don't want to be trapped in an alternate universe or plagued by demons on film. Right. Even though I don't believe that's the case. You still don't want to take that chance? Nope. Okay. I, I see where you're coming from. All right. Fascinating story, though. They're walking down the street. They find this old... 1920 16 millimeter black and white film, still factory sealed. It sounds like the beginning of a horror movie. It really does. They say, we need to make some kind of a a black and white film. We have this great stock footage. Let's do it. So they do it. The film is based on conspiracy and controversy and tragedy and murder from the 1920s. Mm -hmm. They film it on the exact same locations that these things happened or as close as they could in the same buildings and homes and locations. Some say that by doing that, it stirred up ghosts. Mm-hmm. I get that. Then when they look at the negatives, there's all all of this morphing. The characters morph and take on demonic looks and faces and 
And the director says he sees uh, also biblical and Christ-like references in the film. They take the film to the Brooks Institute of Photography. They can't see how it's been doctored in in any way. It's not like they put it in a digital converter and added stuff in. It's right on the old negative itself. It's not a special effect. So what is it? Hard to say. And why has the film never been released? Because it's not very good. (laughs) That could be. That could be. I, you know, I think it's an interesting story because I think finding a bag of old film is interesting anyway. That's just that would blow my mind if I find an old roll of film. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is from 2012. You're so funny because that's exactly what wrote me into the story. Oh wow, they found a bag of old film. That's cool. (laughs) Wait, there's more to the story. So anyway, there you go. That's the story. The Return to Babylon. If anybody can find a full-length version of that, let us know. Uh, good luck. I just really want to see some of these pictures because the things that you are saying, it, it's just so, here, it just sounds so ridiculous to me. Okay, here are some and, of the, here are some of the, yeah. What is that? That just showed up. That's not an actor. That is not somebody in the film. It's just something that showed up in the background. Oh, I don't like that at all. That's pretty creepy. I mean, I don't, obviously, you know, I don't buy into any of this. I just, I think that probably, yeah. oh, it's her face is awful. Yeah, it's pretty terrifying. I don't want to see any, oh, nope, yeah, no. Yeah, there's, nope. there's no, that. No, 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 nope, nope, nope. There's, look at the, look at the nose on her, how elongated that is. All right, very good. I've had, I've looked at enough. Looked at the, Thank you. Okay, good enough. All right, so there you have it. Close that. Close the laptop. There you go. All right, so Return to Babylon. Let us know if you know anything else about that. There's just not a whole lot. Never watch it. I love you too much. <laughs> theboxofoddities.com. That's the website. You can get a hold of us at curator at theboxofoddities.com. Message us. Uh, find us on the social meds. Dang it, I can't believe you got me saying that now. You got me saying it. 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 That wasn't even words. We look forward to seeing you again on Thursday. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. (laughs) Fly it proudly, you freak. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. The Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at Facebook.com slash Box of Oddities Podcast. On Twitter at Box of Oddities. And Instagram at Box of Oddities Podcast. Copyright 2018. All rights reserved. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend, the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? 
On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed.